from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Sunday, the 17th of November. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started a little bit better and dope is a brand new kid to show biz with knowledge i persevere but find out do me a favor let me in here we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the base with the tape dude y'all listen to jen kirkman's live podcast you've got to check it out first of all if you don't listen to jen kirkman's podcast you're nothing um she does a podcast called i seem fun which is uh, an elaborate sort of inside joke about things that she enjoys that nobody else does and things that other people enjoy that she doesn't. So if somebody posts something on Twitter and they're like, well, you should like this, she writes back, oh, you seem fun. So she's sort of poking fun at herself with that whole thing. Anyway, she did a live show in Brooklyn, and man, I, what I wouldn't have given to be there because it's a really good show. And it's not always funny, but it's very interesting, and she's met interesting people like Cher and uh, Quentin Tarantino. But And, you know, I think that's interesting when people do that. You know, Greg Proops has a lot of stories about meeting famous people, which is always interesting. But, of course, that can't just be it, right? Like, you know, Dick Cavett had a big thing about, oh, it reminds me of when I used to know Woody Allen or whatever. Um, but you should definitely check out Jen Kirkman's I Seem Fun podcast. It's it's fun. It's a fun show. And she does funny voices, and she impersonates her mom, Jennifer. Anyway, I can't do... Jen Kirkman doing her mom because it immediately becomes Saul Rosenberg. Jennifer, why don't you give her one of these for me? Which isn't even Jen Kirkman. Or it isn't even Saul Rosenberg anymore. Now it's Stanley something? Garrett, let me know who that guy's name is. Stanley something, I remember. Anyway, the reason I thought of it is because I was about to smack these books I read. Because Jen, she always records the show in bed, and so she pats the bed. when she, I'm in bed. Um, and when she did her live podcast, she had like a bed on stage, which is really cool. So anyway, um, you should check out Jen Kirkman's podcast. These three comic books I read recently. Oh boy, what a way to start. Um, yeah, I'll start with the sad one first. Man, there's this one called War Brothers, the graphic novel by Sharon E. McKay and Daniel LaFrance. And it's about child soldiers in Uganda. And I'm sure you probably know the story by now because it was in the Coney 2012 video. But it's so heartbreaking. And every time I see this story, it it, uh, it breaks my heart anew. So it's it's well done. And it's, you know, they do this thing where the black margins on the pages are, you know, like a third of the pages. Eh, maybe half of the pages are um, black borders because it's when they're with the LRA and then the white borders are when they're with their family and stuff. And it's cool because it do- the story doesn't end when they get back home. Uh, it, it continues with the communities ostracizing them and the pain that they're suffering, thinking about what they're doing and their nightmares or what they've done and their nightmares and all the rest of it. So it's very powerful. I definitely recommend that you check it out. Another story I read was called The Silence of Our Friends, and uh, this is about race, uh, so it's by Mark Long, Jim Demonakos, and Nate Powell, and it's about, the, it takes place in Houston, Texas in 1968, uh, and it's about the civil rights struggle and these two families that kind of come together, and apparently it's based on the author's personal story, or his dad's story, I guess, 
And uh, it's really well done. It's good. There's uh, some very nice small moments where, you know, this friend of their family comes over to stay and he doesn't like the fact that they have uh, these black friends and, and the kids are getting along and stuff and that's unusual at the time. So it's good. It feels a little Pollyanna in some spaces. Like, really, would that really have happened like that? But it's generally very solid. But the crowning jewel, and I didn't even know this existed uh, until I walked past the graphic novel shelf at uh, the high school where I teach. Uh, Guy Delisle has done a number of really fascinating books uh, about travelogues, and he did one called Pyongyang, which of course is in North Korea, and he did one called The Burma Chronicles, and he did one in China. I'm pretty sure it was Shenzhen. But uh, he has a new one called Jerusalem, Chronicles from the Holy City, and it's fantastic. His style is so straightforward and unassuming. And when he went to Pyongyang, he was working on animation stuff. So it was all about, you know, he was working on animation things. And then, of course, it's an overview of the way that society lives and how, you know, people actually live in, in North Korea. And, you know, we imagine that it's misery and suffering all the time. And, of course, that does exist. But, but there are a number of people who they've never known anything different. So they, they just sort of accept it is kind of interesting. And I think at one point he shows a guy a copy of 1984, and he kind of looks through it, and he's like, eh, whatever, that, that just seems really unrealistic or something, you know. And, and it's this thing of an outsider's perspective, and, and we get a perspective of ourselves and our own perspectives of North Korea through the eyes of the North Koreans. It's just fascinating. So his book, Jerusalem, is also fascinating because he's, you know, he's not taking sides. He doesn't have a, a horse in the race. Uh, and he paints some really heartbreaking images, uh, especially of... Israeli settlers doing some horrible things to Palestinians, including you know demolishing homes and stuff. And it uh, it has this, but it has this one beautiful part where they find this playground because he's got his kids there with him, and his wife works for uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. And uh, so there's this whole thing about he's always looking for playgrounds to take the kids. And at one point they find this playground where it's sort of situated between these three neighborhoods and there are Christian parents there. There are Jewish parents there and there are Muslim parents there and they all have their kids. And there's this one panel where all three, you know, people of all three faiths are pushing kids on a swing and, uh, you know, each one has their kid on a swing and it's just this beautiful moment of, you know, very tenuous harmony. Uh, but it's, it's gorgeous. And it, uh, yeah, he does a really good job presenting a very straightforward style. The lines are clean and clear and it's beautiful. You should totally read it. Uh, this week's action is has to do with free speech in Russia, and there's been good news on the uh, Pussy Riot front, so we'll get to that in just a second, but uh, you should definitely go to amnesty.org, and I have a link on my website, fbesp.org slash synapse, and it's a uh, uh, take action, free speech in Russia. Putin, knock it off. You may have heard that there was this guy who uh, nailed a very personal part of his body to Red Square, I think, or somewhere in, in Russia. And it was horrifying, but of course he's trying to get attention to the fact that there is no free speech in Russia. So the least we can do is send a little digital action alert thing. Hey, people, Russia, come on, free speech, make it happen. All right, so yeah, let's talk about what is going on. Uh, Pussy Riot's Nadia Nadezhda, Nadezhda Tolokonikova may serve the rest of her jail term in the hospital. Um, 
the, the singer activist uh, may spend the rest of her two-year prison term in the Siberian prison hospital as she recovers from the effects of a hunger strike that brought international attention to the state of Russia's prison system. Uh, Ms. Tolokonikova, who is due to complete her sentence in March, told her husband on Friday that she had arrived at Regional Tuberculosis Hospital Number 1 in the central Siberian city of Krasnoyarsk three days earlier, ending an epic 4,000-kilometer rail journey during which she vanished from public view. So a lot of people were really concerned when she had just vanished like that. But she turns up, uh, according to her husband, yeah, uh, she's doing okay, but she is undergoing quite extensive treatment for complications that arose during her first hunger strike. It is possible she will see out her sentence in the hospital, which is probably better than serving it in the prison, but it just sucks. And if you haven't read her... Um, you know, statement from prison about what prison was like. It's absolutely unbelievable. You got to check that out. He declined to go into detail about her health problems, but said she expected to be undergoing extensive treatment in coming days, quote, but she seems too cheerful to be in any danger, he said. So that's good news. Of course, all the members of Pussy Riot should be freed immediately. This is a blatant violation of free speech as protected by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Elizabeth Warren for president. There's talk about Elizabeth Warren running for president in 2016. Oh, my God. Now, here's the thing. Oh, wait a minute, Mr. Piotrowski. How, weren't you really excited when Obama was announced as president? And I, I'm real tempted here to do one of those famous voices which people love. Because I got some email feedback about the burnout hippie dork who was on the show last week. But Last week. Anyway... Uh, the Duchess said that I shouldn't do the voices all the time because they get old. And, in fact, her exact words were, You shouldn't do voices all the time because the voices, they get old. You gotta use it judiciously. Less is more. Me, 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 me. That's exactly what she sounds like, by the way, in case you never heard the Duchess talk. I don't think you should do the voices. Anyway, uh, I was excited when Obama ran for president. I, I, I looked at him and I was like, dude, community organizer on the south side of Chicago, lawyer, intelligent, African-American, so he knows sort of the struggles that people face. He's not going to ignore the problems of race. And, you know, the speeches he gave and the books he wrote were all about, like, you know, we got to move forward and, and we got to fight the power and we got to make things better and, you know, I'll close Guantanamo and yeah, 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 yeah. And then he got into office, and like he started immediately buckling, like Dante and Clerks. Don't back down. You always back down. You assume blame that's not yours. You come in on your day off. You buckle like a belt. Do you know what really pisses me off? The fact that I'm right about your buckling. Then I'm gonna miss the f***ing game. Because you buckle. You shut up with that shit. It ain't helping. I don't yell at me, pal. I'm sorry. See, there you go again. Ha! <laughs> it's funny because Randall's funny. Names like Dante and Handel. It's Randall! Anyway, uh, yeah, so Elizabeth Warren. Now, here's the... So, but she's so awesome! And, and like, is it... I mean, imagine if she won. Yay, Elizabeth Warren rules! Maybe when she gets into office, she'll start buckling like a belt. God! I don't know what to believe anymore! Thanks a lot, Obama! I mean, I have to believe that, you know... It, she, dude, look, she got elected to the Senate, and she ain't been buckling since she got into the Senate. If anything, she's been... What's the opposite of buckling? She's been tightening her belt, but you buck... Whatever. Anyway, uh, so here's the... I mean, she hasn't even said she's... Run Who knows? What the... What is all this speculation? It's still three years away! Anyway, uh, Elizabeth... Senator Elizabeth Warren... What is this? The Guardian? Guardian? 
Elizabeth Warren challenges Obama to break up too big to fail Wall Street banks. Uh, amid speculation she might run against Hillary Clinton in 2016, firebrand senator attacks regulators for multiple failings. Now, if I were Hillary Clinton, I'd be like, no, damn you, Elizabeth Warren, this is my time. I want to be the first female president. But Elizabeth Warren would make a much better first female president than Hillary Clinton would. Let me tell you what. Senator Elizabeth Warren cemented her growing reputation as a darling of the political left on Tuesday. Why is that important? Why lead with that? It's not grandstanding. Anyone who knows Elizabeth Warren knows she's been doing this from the jump. It's because she cares about working people, and they're making it look like she's doing this in order to cement her reputation as a darling of the left. Whatever. With a wide-ranging speech challenging the Obama administration to take on Wall Street and break up its biggest banks. Amid new speculation, blah, 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 she might run, she appeared at a congressional event to attack regulators for failing to tackle the problem of financial institutions that are too big to fail. Quote, We have got to get back to running this country for American families, not for its largest financial institutions, said Warren, who said the issue was an indictment of how little had changed since the 2008 banking crash. Now, that's not, that's not disputable. That's not like political grandstanding. This is just plain facts. We've done nothing to change things. Dodd-Frank was a tiny little, you know, that did 2% of what needed to be done. And so, you know, Guardian's next paragraph, the four biggest Wall Street banks are 30% larger than before the financial crisis, she said, while the five biggest institutions hold more than half the bank assets in the country. She's been pushing for a new... Um, Glass-Steagall Act, and she's right about that, so it ought to happen. Oh, I forgot to mention, with regard to that, uh, the Nadezhda Tolonkonikova, uh, she's been writing letters to Slavoj Žižek, and there's some interesting back and forth between the two of them. That has nothing to do with Elizabeth Warren, but I thought it was interesting. Anyway, all right, speaking of Obama buckling, ugh, all right, <sighs> so Obamacare's going into effect now, and the, the there was a, a show with... Um, Bill Moyers, I'm going to have to add that Bill Moyers link because there is a show that he had these people, uh, Jill Stein and some other woman who were talking about Obama, their doctors, and talking about Obamacare is, is, is not a step in the right direction. It's nothing good. All it does is make people have to buy insurance plans. And I mean, I think more people will have access to health care than had it before, but it's not a step in the right direction. And it's really whatever. We need a single payer healthcare system in this country, period, end of discussion. But. Obama's been doing this stuff where he's like apologizing for what insurance companies are doing. What is this article? New York Times. Okay, so the headline is Obama apologizes to Americans who've been dropped by their insurers. Apologizing, comma, Obama yields to criticism of his health law. And in case you don't know, Obama's doing all this stuff about, oh, if you like your plan, you can keep it. When Obamacare goes into effect, you, if you like your current plan, you can keep it. You can keep it. I promise you can keep it. You can keep it, period. And now, and then... But here's the thing. So then people are like, oh, you can't keep it. Turns out you can't keep it. But here's the thing. That's nothing to do with Obama. That's to do with the insurance companies. President Obama bowed Thursday night to mountain criticism. He had misled the American people about the health care law, apologizing to people who were forced off their health insurance plans by the Affordable Care Act, despite assurances from him. In an interview with NBC News, Mr. Obama said he did not do enough to ensure that the law did not force the termination of insurance policies that people like because they do not meet the law's new coverage requirements. It means a lot to them, and it's scary to them, and I'm sorry they are, you know, finding themselves in this situation. Blah, 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 blah. 
For years, Obama has repeatedly said yada, yada, yada. But hundreds of thousands of people across the country began receiving letters of cancellation from their insurance companies in recent weeks, prompting accusations that Mr. Obama lied about the impact of the health care costs for political reasons. But here's the thing. No, those insurance companies could have said, this plan is still in effect. We're just adding this new stuff in. But no, that would affect their profits. So, what they're, so, the, so the insurance companies are the ones who are doing the thing wrong and this is all instantly fixable. Senator Mary L. Landrieu, Democrat of Louisiana, introduced legislation this week to force insurance companies to reissue the health plans they have been canceling by the thousands. And officials in several states have sought assurances from insurance companies that people will not be dropped until the federal health insurance website is working. So I don't understand what all the hoopla is. What the hoop? This is all misdirection because. Business Week even said it in another article. Insurance companies didn't give enough notice. The insurance companies are the ones who are screwing up here, and I don't understand why Obama... It's buckling. Obama feels like he has to apologize because he's got some syndrome where everything goes wrong, and he's like, well, it must be my fault. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic. And it's all... Oh, insurance company... And you know what? Hey, look, everyone's like, oh, Obama shouldn't back down. Obama shouldn't back down. Is this the political horse race? And... Uh, in a way, whatever. I don't. I mean, you know, I don't think he should apologize for what insurance companies are doing wrong. He ought to say, "This isn't my bad. This is the insurance companies who are doing the wrong thing here." But I will say this: in terms of the horse race, he stood fast when it came to that stupid government shutdown that the Tea Party made happen. And the fact that he stood fast then means that he has some political capital in order to compromise now. Now, I don't agree with this compromise, but the idea is that you should never compromise on anything. You should never apologize. And this is tied up with masculinity and this notion of being, you know, a strong person. Like, you never apologize. No! A strong person recognizes when he or she is wrong, and they go, oh, my bad. Now, I don't. again, I don't think he's really wrong here, but whatever. If he didn't do enough to stop, whatever, whatever. People, you know who should apologize is Rand Paul, and he hasn't, and it's pathetic. Rand Paul's a such a dork. Now, he's stood up for, you know, against the drones and he's done some things that I agree with in some ways, but uh he he uh plagiarized at some point from Wikipedia when he was talking about Gattaca, which I don't even understand why you do that in the first place, but whatever. Anyway, he wrote a book called Government Bullies this year and an entire section of it apparently was copied wholesale from a 2003 case study by the Heritage Foundation. This is according to BuzzFeed.com, which a lot of things in BuzzFeed are stupid, but whatever. This appears to be legit because, you know, a lot of other news sources have run with it. Um, yeah, the copied section, 1,318 words, is by far the most significant instance reported so far of Paul borrowing the language from other published material. The new cut-and-paste job follows reports by BuzzFeed Politico and MSNBC that Paul had plagiarized speeches from either Wikipedia or news reports. The book was published in August of this year by Center Street, a division of Hatchet. Really? It's called Hatchet Book Group? Hatchet! It's a hatchet job, apparently. Ah, zing! In this case, Paul included a link to the Heritage case study in the book's footnotes, though he made no effort to indicate that not just the source, but the words themselves have been taken from Heritage. So how am I, as an English teacher, supposed to tell my kids, don't plagiarize, if Rand Paul can do it and not get in trouble for it? That's the thing that really bugs me, and it's not just about Rand Paul. Ted Cruz hasn't been kicked out of office. We tell kids all the time, if you plagiarize, that's a really serious thing. You will fail your class in college. You will fail the semester. You might get kicked out of your college. Well, apparently, it's not such a big deal, because Rand and Paul does it, and nothing happens to him. It's pathetic. People ought to just rise up and insist that he step down because this is an inexcusable act of intellectual 
um, dishonesty. That's what we always tell the students, intellectual dishonesty. And it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if it was an accident or not. You know, I mean, if it were an accident, that would be one thing, but it's not in this case. So it's just pathetic, and there ought to be some consequence. And it's the same about people on TV who say anything they want, the most outrageous stuff. They're totally wrong. They just present lies as the truth, and nothing happens. There's no follow-up for it. Michelle Bachman should have been forced out of office the day after she said, this woman told me your daughter got Down syndrome from some vaccine. As soon as it became clear that it was lies, she should have been forced out of office. There ought to be somebody in Congress who goes, you know, look, if you have a lie that's of a significant magnitude, you you have to leave office. And that would make people in Congress get a lot more careful with what they say. Speaking of people who ought to say things that are less stupid, uh, Sarah Palin. Oh my God! I, I, this is fascinating to me. Not because of what she said, because of how she prefaced it. Um, she compared federal debt to slavery. Now, I, you know what? I, she's not the first one to say that, and I think the debt's a huge problem, and we ought to work on it. Now, how do we work on it? First of all, Sarah Palin will tell you that entitlements are the big problem, and that they're not. Things like food stamps, which just got cut again, they are like. A fraction of 1% of the U.S. federal budget. So don't come to me with cutting food stamps going to do anything about the debt. Okay? It has nothing to do with anything. The biggest reasons we're in debt are our $600 billion a month. A month. Uh, we're getting there, though. We spend $600 billion a year on the military. Uh, Social Security and Medicare are the huge chunks of our federal budget. And Social Security is a separate set of incomes and outlays. So it's really not fair to even look at that as part of the federal budget. Um, but you can't talk about Medicare because senior citizens will destroy you as soon as you even say the word med. You could say, uh, we should cut med, and, you, and they'll start going, kill that person! And I was going to say meds in, in uh, Left for Dead or whatever. Anyway, the, the amazing thing is what, how she did it. Okay, I'm going to play this video of her talking because it's absolutely fascinating the way she leads into it. This is the Des Moines Register lead-in music. Here we go. Now, you know coming up that the other side will just offer more of the same, more false promises. More false promises. Man, I'm not going to pause this every time she says anything, but good God. If there's anybody talking about false promises, man, it's her and this government shutdown was supposed to, she promised it. Was, well, I don't know if she actually promised anything, but it's just pathetic. Shut up, Sarah Palin. Keep talking. More free stuff. More free stuff. I love free stuff. Yeah. She's the one who said when they were living in Alaska and they didn't have money for health care, they used to sneak into Canada. How hypocritical can you get? And the media, for far too long, will go along with it and all the deception. What will you counter it with? See, this free stuff is so seductive. Why do you think marketers use free stuff to bring people in? Free stuff Ugh. is such a strong marketing ploy. You know what other marketing ploy marketers use? Repetition. You just keep drilling it into people's heads, and they don't even have to think about it. Free stuff, free stuff, free stuff, free stuff. The problem is people are getting free stuff. That's the problem. But it isn't. What did I just say the problem is? It has nothing to do with free stuff. It has to do with medical costs. It has to do with insurance companies. It has to do with military contract boondoggles. Shut up, Sarah Palin. Get to the part about slavery. It's a tool. That You're a tool. That free stuff is 
seductive, but didn't you all learn too in Econ 101, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Oh, uh, she used ain't to give it that kind of homesly spin. Like, I'm just, just folks. You learned in Econ 101. We didn't all take Econ 101, Sarah Palin. Some of us were busy trying to pursue our literature degrees. Oh, wait, that's not a good way to respond to that. We were working at the factory making other machines for other factories. Our free stuff today is being paid for by taking money from our children and borrowing from China. 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 When that note comes due, and this isn't racist, so try it. Try it anyway. This is She's waving at the camera. This isn't racist, so try it. Try it anyway. What does that even mean? And as soon as, of course, as soon as somebody says, this isn't racist, but you know they're about to say something incredibly racist. It's not racist, but it's going to be like slavery when that note is due, right? We are going to be beholden to a foreign master. Okay, first of all, all these... Uh, Whatever. I, I'm not even going to get into China because it's not just China that holds our debt. There's lots of people who are holding our debt. So this notion that she's playing on our fear of the other and our fear of China. Well, you know what? If we didn't want to have that fear of China, maybe we should demand that China you know, play by the rules of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, and the International Labor Organization and allow independent unions. No, we want cheap stuff. She didn't talk a lot about cheap stuff, does she? Because that's where all her happy, fabulous free market fantasies come down to. Walmart gets 70% of their crap from China because it's cheaper from China. So anyway, whatever. I, I've been told that I shouldn't pay as much attention to Sarah Palin because maybe, you know, she... She 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 has the power she has because we're willing to spend so much time talking about her stuff, but it's just ridiculous. I get so mad. Uh, we should move on to something that will make me less mad. Fracking! Yeah! Uh, there's this new book out about fracking called The Frackers by Gregory Zuckerman. And, oh, God, I read the first part of this book, the introduction on Amazon's Look Inside feature. Thanks, Amazon. And, uh... It's just ridiculous because apparently the book is all about how like there were a few visionary leaders who wanted to make fracking happen and find new ways to do it. And these are the new ways that, first of all, obviate any discussion about fracking's been around for 50 years. <laughs> it's a new form of fracking. It's totally different than the way it's been done before. So don't believe the hype when it, the people are like, oh, we've been fracking for a long time. And second of all, it's all about, this is the same kind of fracking that's been polluting groundwater as, as evidenced by gas land and, 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 oh God. So anyway, Gregor Zuckerman, there's this one sentence that I uh, had to copy because he says, a burst of drilling in shale and over, other long overlooked rock formations has created the biggest phenomenon to hit the business world since the housing and technology booms. Yeah, the housing boom, the one that led to the 2008 economic disaster and the technology boom, which led to the dot-com crash in the 2000s. Are you kidding me? You're using those as the comparison for fracking? Ah, am I going nuts here? Is it me? I sound crazy. Like when I was in class recently, and we were, I don't remember how we got onto the topic of it, but we, we started talking about like the Twitter IPO, and I mentioned that you know, 70% of the stocks being traded on Wall Street are actually being traded by insane robots. And these students are listening to me and they're like, are you like a crazy person? You sound crazy. And I'm like, but I'm not. Like, look at this book. And I, I had dark pools with me, which I've talked about on this show a lot. And I said, look at this book. 
And this isn't some fringe... This isn't published by AK Press. This isn't like, you know... Uh, what's that? There's some press, uh, Haymarket Press. This isn't like Haymarket Press or whatever. This is published by, and I looked up the name of the publisher, and I said, look, it's a division of Random House. And they all go, what's Random House? And I was like, oh, God, this is why we can't have a conversation about all this. Because your memory has been obliterated. The collective political memory has been obliterated by reality TV and cell phones, and everybody, nobody knows what Random House is, nobody knows how you find a reliable source, and if you spend time trying to teach them, they're just like, whatever, I just use Wikipedia. And again, don't get me wrong, Wikipedia is a great site, but it's not a reliable source in and of itself. It's a way for you to find reliable sources. So, it's just, God, everything that's on the internet, people believe it, and it's just ridiculous. Uh, anyway, um, in California, there's been this new set of proposed fracking rules. It's been uh, proposed by Governor Jerry Brown, which right away, I, I just don't even know what to make of this second term of Governor Jerry Brown. Because those of you who know your uh, dead Kennedy's history, you remember the song California Uber Alles, right? Jerry Brown's governor of California again. Jello, what do you think about that? And Michael Franti in Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy did a really good cover of California Uberalis, and it was about the other governor that had later on, I don't remember his name, but it was also good. Anyway, so Jerry Brown has released proposed fracking rules for California. Hailed by state officials as the toughest in the nation, the draft regulations issued Friday would require those who conduct fracking to get state permits, test groundwater quality, and notify neighbors before starting work. Sounds decent to me. The regulations cover fracking and related techniques, and they provide substantial new public information about where and how fracking is taking place. Now, later in the article it says, environmentalists contend that fracking could pollute drinking water wells, endanger public health, and release greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. What's needed now, they said, is a statewide ban on fracking and related techniques until scientists can provide firm assurances that the practice won't cause harm. Quote, we want a timeout, said Catherine Phillips, state director of the Sierra Club. At best, these regulations can be described as a mixed bag, she said. At worst, they provide another example of an agency's continued deference to a regulated entity, even at the expense of public health and the environment. So, I don't know. I mean, this seems like a step in the right direction for me, but I would totally vote for a nationwide ban on fracking until... Uh, you know, until, I was going to say until we get more science. And then that makes me sound like the climate skeptics because I'm like, well, the science isn't in, the science isn't in. I actually think there's enough science to suggest that fracking is not safe and it's possible we might be able to do it safely, but we need to know what's in that fracking fluid and we need to severely prosecute people who dump groundwater because I reported on a thing that Pennsylvania's got contamination and whatever, whatever. Um... Anyway, nevertheless, some opponents conceded that the proposed regulations were better than nothing. Bill Alayad of the Environmental Working Group said, quote, there are some good provisions for our very from our very preliminary review, he said. So, I, I don't know. I, I think, again, whatever. Anyway, uh, in Illinois, there it's not going over well. This headline is from, where is it from? Yo, Chicago Tribune. 
Proposed fracking rules in Illinois raise ire of environmentalists. Proposed rules for horizontal hydraulic fracturing. And does that not sound like burn slant drilling on the Simpsons? Made public Friday by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources are raising the ire of environmental groups who contend the rules would weaken key components of the state law passed five months ago. Oil and gas drillers also aren't happy because the time required to hear public comments, respond to those comments, and make revisions to the proposed rules could take months. Brad Richards, vice president of the Illinois Oil and Gas Association. Isn't that great? The headline says environmentalists. And the first quote comes from the vice president of the Illinois Oil and Gas Association. I, To be honest, given all the money for the PR machine for the oil and gas associations and the trade groups and the industry organizations and the marketing firms on them, these people have billions and billions of dollars. Why do they get to be in the newspaper at all? They have ads running 24-7 on TV talking about how environmental and green and friendly they are. I think a newspaper would be within their rights to say, we're not going to have you quoted in the paper at all because you get to be quoted everywhere already. Anyway, he suggested Friday that some companies that have leased land might give up on the state, which has been counting on fracking to bring much-needed jobs and tax revenue to southern Illinois. So, isn't that sound like a hostage situation? Well, if you don't uh, start fracking right away, we're going to leave. Meh. Dork. Brad Dorkards, not Richards, but whatever. Uh, Al- Ann Alexander, senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council in Chicago, said she was concerned because the draft weakens regulations aimed at protecting groundwater. Environmentalists successfully fought for a requirement in the law that wastewater from fracking operations be contained in tanks, except in emergencies when it could be stored in open pits for up to seven days. The rules as drafted, she said, would allow wastewater to sit in open pits throughout fracking operations and up to seven days after fracking operations had ceased. So that's messed up. And I, I, I mean, look, here's the thing. I keep running into these people on Reddit who are like, well, I'm a geologist and I think people are just being stupid on the fracking debate because they don't understand how geology works and blah, 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 blah. Now, first of all, we have no way of knowing whether these people are actually geologists or they could very well be fracking oil company PR schmucks sitting in some Exxon office somewhere. It's possible. And they might be geologists working for Exxon or whatever. Uh, or, you know, ex-frack, or, uh, you know, Exxon's going to subcontract somebody to do the actual fracking. But here's my point. Look, even if they're true, it comes down to who you believe. And there is kind of a leap of faith that goes on, because we don't, I don't know enough about geology to hear a geologist say, well, here's why fracking can't contaminate groundwater wells. Because I, I don't know the geology, and I don't have time to learn it. I'm sorry. You have time to yell into the mic once every two weeks. I know, but... I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm not going to get it. It's like when I was doing the Wikipedia article about Emmy Noether. There were like four people who tried for hours to explain to me how rings works in mathematics. I just could not get it. I tried as hard as I could. I did, you know, I tried to follow their little explanations, and it just didn't happen. I, I still to this day don't know how rings work in mathematics. And don't try trying to help me to understand it. I appreciate the effort, but it's a lost cause. So it becomes an act of faith. Who do you trust? to talk about, you know, how fracking works and whether it's safe or not. To be honest, you know, I, 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 I don't like to sound like Josh Fox is, you know, like some chosen one, but he's just an ordinary guy, right? He's not some wingnut lunatic. He leans left, obviously, but, but he's just a guy who said, 
I don't know how this works, and I've, I'm curious. I mean, if you haven't seen gasoline, you've got to see it. Because, you know, the oil company just came to him and said, like, look, we want to frack on your land. What do you think? And, and he was like, look, this land belongs to my family, and it's kind of a trust. And I don't want bad things to happen because I had some short, you know, narrow vision view of money right here and now. And, you know, the Business Week articles are all about like, oh, not so much Business Week because they're, they're pretty level-headed. But like Forbes and, and the Wall Street Journal had these things about like, oh, fracking can free us from our dependence on oil from Saudi Arabia. And, you know, gas prices are so much lower than they would have been and all this stuff. And, and I, I can't dispute that. I mean, there are obvious economic advantages, not just for the individuals whose land gets fracked on, but for the society as a whole. But... Who knows what horrible environmental damage we're doing? And it always comes in decades after the fact, right? When we when we had, you know, we're only now coming to terms with the fact that cars kind of suck and that we ought to find other ways for us to move human beings around because cars are polluting and machines and they, they kind of suck, you know? Now, there's not a lot of option. I can't ride my bike into Sun Prairie, right? But it's... It's the type of thing where we ought to take take it slow, man. Slow ride. Oh, God, we got to move on. Let's talk about some economics. Couple things on the economics front this time. Uh, professor of economics and law says J.P. Morgan's fine should have been 22 times bigger. This is from Mother Jones, which is a left-leaning source. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and they, you know, their headline was expert colon J.P. Morgan's 13. And the question always should be, who's this expert? What are you even talking about? Um, all right. So the expert in question here is William Black, an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a former bank regulator who led investigations of the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. OK, so he's got some credentials, in my opinion. It's an interesting guy and it's a very important perspective. So um, on Saturday, what? mid-October. Wow, this is an old article. Anyway, uh, on Saturday in October, J.P. Morgan reached a tentative deal with the Department of Justice, which has investigated the megabank for having packaged poor quality mortgages into securities that it sold to investors. Some of the securities were peddled by Washington Mutual and the investment bank Bear Stearns, two failing firms that J.P. Morgan absorbed in 2008. Now, here's the thing. People have said, oh, J.P. Morgan shouldn't be held responsible because that's not something they did. That's something these other banks did. But you know what? That's so stupid. Look, when you take on another company, when you buy another company, you buy their liabilities. That's the way it works. You get the assets that they hold, and you get the intellectual property that they have. You get their patents. You get all their stuff, good and bad. And they obviously, they they should have known this was coming. And they did know it was. This is so bogus. People are like, oh, picking on J.P. Morgan. The $13 billion penalty, which is not yet final, would cover about $9 billion in fines paid to the federal government and $4 billion in relief for struggling homeowners. Now, that's a happy news. Some of this money is going to go to struggling homeowners. Yes, it will be the largest penalty that a single company has ever paid in settling a case with the Justice Department. The historic deal is a sign that the Obama administration's crackdown on Wall Street is finally gaining steam. Well, maybe they're finally settling some cases and I don't I don't trust settlements because when a bank agrees to a settlement a it knows that they probably wouldn't get you know found guilty in court and b it means they don't have to admit wrongdoing and c it means they get to deduct a lot of the money from taxes and e 
it's it's a financial arrangement. It's like in Fight Club. A plus B plus C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. So when a company like J.P. Morgan's willing to do one of these deals, I know they're doing it because they know it's not that bad for them. I want it to be that bad for them. Experts note that the $13 billion fine, which seems a gargantuan amount, and it is to you and me, but it's not to J.P. Morgan, is not nearly enough. Really, first, the fine is really only $9 billion, says William Black, the blah, 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 the expert I talked about before. The $4 billion in relief to homeowners, he explains, represents loan modifications that the bank would have made in any event to minimize losses and avoid foreclosures. And that $9 million, he adds, is tax deductible. Second, Black says, the total damages J.P. Morgan, Washington Mutual, and Bear Stearns inflicted directly on purchasers of the shoddy mortgage-backed securities is estimated to be $100 billion. Quote, the normal rule in terms of remedies for frauds of this scope, he says, is that you pay for your damages that you caused. And if those damages were caused by fraud as opposed to near negligence, Black adds, the U.S. legal system often makes the fraudster pay punitive damages of at least twice that amount. A normal recovery would be in the range of $200 billion, he says. So, uh, punitive damages here. I'm punitive damages. You want to sue me? Why not? Me? Sue everybody. What does that got to do with me? Well, punitive damages here. The car, side car smashed into a pole and everything. Well, I'm trying to explain. I had a terrible accident. What's that got to do with me? Well, I'm asking you for help, and uh, maybe I could sue for punitive damages that you're giving me. I'm giving you? Yes. Me? Yes. What I do to you? Well, punitive damages here. <laughs> oh, jerky boys, I love you so much. I keep, Every time a student comes into my classroom, I'm always like, hey, how do you say? And they're like, what? I'm like, how do you say? And they're like, what are you talking? What is that? I don't even know how to answer that. What does that mean? And I'm like, jerky boys. And then they'll say something like, you know, oh, I don't have my essay today, Mr. P. And I'll go, yeah, huh? And they'll go, no. I'm like, yeah, huh? <laughs> jerky boys. Punitive damages here. Jerky boys. Um... All right, moving on. The TPP. All right, so, oh, God. Give us some background. Yeah, all right. In the early days of international trade, there was slavery and thievery and all sorts of stuff. Eventually, the big smart people said, we should come up with a way to enshrine this thievery into law. And we're going to win because we're big and we can crush small economic factors. But... If we could have a law that benefits us, that would be awesome. And that's how the GATT was formed, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. And it ruled for decades, and it kind of sucked, but it wasn't too horrible. But then NAFTA came along in the 1990s, and uh, NAFTA was supposed to be this big job producer, and uh, Ross Perot said it's going to create a sucking sound down in Texas because all the jobs are going to be sucked down to Mexico. And that's kind of what happened, but Mexico didn't benefit a lot from this you know, transfer of jobs because the reason companies went to Mexico is because environmental regulations were lower and the maquila doors opened up on the border and everybody got, you know, brain tumors and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it kind of sucked, NAFTA did. And then the World Trade Organization said, we should do that all over the world. And it's all about reducing trade barriers, blah, blah, blah. And this is why we had the battle in Seattle in 1999. And this is why there were protests every time the IMF and World Trade Organization and the World Bank set up shop anywhere around the world. They're going to have meetings. People have these huge protests. And they should. They're right to protest because it's totally undemocratic. And it's a few very wealthy people and the trade representatives that they've bought going and agreeing on a deal that has very minimal environmental regulations. And, you know, it says that, like, minimum wage is a barrier to free trade. So it's all messed up. And TPP is the newest incarnation of this global attempt to 
destroy trade barriers. And so Democracy Now! had this awesome discussion. It was a discussion. It was a bloodbath because it was a debate between this guy from the Cato Institute named Bill Watson and this awesome woman named Lori Wallach uh, from Public Citizen, Global Trade Watch. And she's been in the game for a minute. Like, she's been for years just struggling and trying to let people know, here's what's going on, folks. This affects you. And those of us who are on the front lines are saying, yeah, that's important. Let's take this. Let's publicize it. So, and I, we on the front line, I'm not on the front lines anymore, I'm teaching, but in a way, that is the front lines, man, don't you see, because we got to get the next generation aware of this stuff, man, I had a student who watched the Corporation documentary, awesome movie, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it, and he comes back, you know, the next day, and he goes, Mr. P, man, there's so much going on, it feels like, how can you do anything, and I was like, yeah, I know, but, but look at Cochabamba, man, they fought back, and they won, we can win, East Timor, man, don't believe the hype, no fate. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Democracy Now! had this great thing, and WikiLeaks exposed some part of the TPP, because it's all being done in secret, and the dude in the Cato Institute, Bill Watson, he starts out, first of all, with, oh, this is actually going to help people, and everybody should support it, free trade is good, and blah, blah, blah. Because Cato Institute's this total libertarian, and again, look, here's the thing, man, oh, God, because there are people who are like, oh, libertarianism, yeah, freedom, okay, government uh, oversight, bad, you know, government repression, you know, dude, when I was reading, I was rereading, oh, I guess it was Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience. Like, there was so much in there about, like, government should get out of the way, let people do it. That's where he said, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine, and all this repressive action from the government is bad. And there's no question about that. But here's the thing, man Thoreau didn't know about the repressive power of corporate power. And they didn't, you know, he didn't, he hadn't, he hadn't seen the way in which, as John Dewey said, government is the shadow cast by business over society. So Thoreau's whole thing was about government overstepping its boundary, and we should be aware of that. And yes, libertarians are right when they stand up to government overstepping its boundaries. But who's going to do something about business overstepping its boundaries? Nobody, that's who. Unless we get together and say, as a collective group of people, we insist that this business stop doing this horrible stuff. But you know who has the only group that has the power to do that? Government. So, yes, I'm worried about government overreach, but I'm worried, too, about business overreach. And if government's not going to be able to prevent business overreach, who is? So I can't say, like, libertarianism sucks. But libertarianism, most libertarians have this attitude that, like, well, it's... Unless a libertarian is willing to admit that business goes off the rails and does horrible stuff too, we can't have any discussion because their whole focus is on government. So anyway, whatever. Um, Critics say the deal could rewrite U.S. laws on intellectual property rights, product safety, and environmental regulations, while backers say it will help create jobs and boost the economy. President Obama and U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman reportedly wish to finalize the TPP by the end of the year and are pushing Congress to expedite legislation that grants the president something called fast-track authority. However, this week, some 151 House Democrats and 23 Republicans wrote letters to the administration saying they are unwilling to give the president free reign to, quote, diplomatically legislate. And the thing about Fast Track is this, because Lori Wallach has a really interesting book that's available online, apparently, about Fast Track. And basically, Fast Track is exactly what it sounds like, man. Congress is supposed to be the ones who... Congress is supposed to be the ones... Real good, English teacher. Congress is supposed to decide what trade agreements we enter into, Yeah. And with Fast Track, which they asked for at the WTO, they asked for for NAFTA, they asked for for, you know, MAI, Multilateral Agreement on Investments, was the uh, thing like TPP that they tried to do before. TPP is trans-Pacific, so it's just, uh, so, you know, basically along the Pacific Rim. But there's agreements being 
cooked up for Europe. And we do individual trade agreements with countries all over the world, which should get more attention, but they don't because, you know, it tends to be an unequal trading partnership. And we go into, you know, Colombia or whatever, as in Cochabamba, as Bolivia. Anyway, uh, we go into these tiny countries and we say, like, look, if you want access to our markets, you have to destroy your barriers to free trade. And this is how Disney ends up making their sweatshirts in Haiti, paying the workers two cents a minute, or not two cents a minute. That would actually be all right. Um, it, it's whatever. So, But the fast track is where Congress says, oh, we don't need to have any discussion about what this trade agreement means for us. We just grant the executive branch and the trade representative all the power to decide that stuff, and whatever they think is good, fine, they can do it. And that sounds good in theory, because then, you know, bureaucratic red tape, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? This stuff's important. From time to time, you ought to have some red tape in order to make sure that everything's being done right, and that the agreement's actually in the best interest of the American people. That's what democracy is. And democracy takes a long time. But I'm not comfortable saying, like, what the hell with it, because it takes too long. Some things ought to take a while. All right, moving on. Uh, Vicky Price uh, is this important person in the UK, and she has this new book out, I think. I think it's a new book. She went to prison, and she came out. Uh, yeah, she's the economist and author of Prisonomics, and she the new headline is, Prison Clearly Does Not Work. So she went to prison, and she wrote this book about why prison sucks. Price came to Britain, and this is from the Guardian. I just closed the window. Why'd you close it, dork? Uh, TheGuardian.com. Yeah, okay. Price came to Britain from her native Greece alone as a teenager and worked in hotel room service to pay for A and O and A level studies. Now, hold on a second. Right there, that means nothing to me. So, British people, y'all need to let me know what the heck does that mean? O and A level studies, high school, college. What what does that mean? Talk English. Hooligans, ruffians. So she she paid for her O and A level studies before gaining a scholarship to study at the LSE, London School of Economics. I do know what LSE means. What? Booyah! Because Hajun Chang gave a great talk there once. Her career as an economist took her to the highest levels of government. In 2002, she became the first woman chief economic advisor at the Department of Trade and Industry, and in 2007 became joint head of the government's economic service. When the news broke that she had been sent to prison, I felt, like many, that the sentence was a disproportionate response to the crime, perverting the course of justice. But Price has worked with charities that helped unemployed people and ex-offenders, so it may be no bad thing for a respected expert in economics to have a look at what is going on in our prison system from the inside. The annual cost in prison... Per prison place for a woman is more than 56,000 pounds. And let me pull up my thing. I'm doing like Stephen Colbert. Just like punching it in. But uh, your search for K space HY 3L semicolon apostrophe 54K. Actually, what I need to do is uh, currency converter. Oh, look. Google knows what I want before I even type it in. I want to go from British pound sterling to the US dollar. And here. What did I say it was? Hold on. 56,000 pounds is how much? That's $90,000. Damn. That's a bit of cash. Um, yeah. Yet intensive community orders cost less than a third of that, and evidence shows they have more impact on reducing reoffending. So, I mean, look, we can leave aside the question of whether people ought to suffer for what they've done. But I think any enlightened individual would say the real goal of justice systems is to make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future. And, you know, restorative justice does that. And this sounds like, what is this? 
intensive community orders, whatever that is, that's more effective. So what the heck? Why are we bothering with these prisons? Because we have this idea that, like, lock them up and throw away the key. And as, as George Carlin said, what a stupid idea. Where are you going to throw a key? In front of the prison? His friends will find it. Anyway, uh, how far can you throw a key? 30, 50 feet? Even if you put it on its side and you scale it? Anyway, uh, yeah. It makes no economic sense to keep women in prison who present no threat of harm to others. And it goes without saying, this is true about men too. Prison often exacerbates the problems these women were facing before they were sent away. The lack of coordinated governmental thinking on this is perpetuating the problems and doing nothing to lower costs or reoffending, which costs a staggering 9 billion pounds or 10 billion pounds a year. And that probably comes out to a lot of dinero. A lot of do-re-mi, as the guy says in Amazon Women on the Moon. They speak the universal language. Do-re-mi. Yeah, let's talk education, people. Man, I didn't even complain about my parent-teacher conferences. I had to stay at school for 13 hours. I, man, I don't get to sleep for 13 hours. I wouldn't sleep for 13 hours if I could, but that was a long day, man, because we went in. Okay, so thir- usually what we do is we have a whole day for conferences, and then we go in at like 10.30 a.m., and then we stay until like 7.30 p.m. So, you know, it's the type of thing where parents usually can't come in during the work day because they're working. What a notion, right? But so that we, you know, we... we shift the day toward the evening and then parents can come in after work okay fine that works but i guess the administration wanted to make sure that parents if they wanted to could come in before work one day so we started conf so we, we stayed at work from we had a normal school day on thursday from 7 30 a.m until 3 15 p.m and then the 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 national honor society gave us pizza for dinner Woo! it was good pizza let me tell you what day one pizza and sun prayer it's good stuff Anyway, uh, oh, that was advertising, I'm, but I didn't get paid for it, so it's just a spontaneous recommendation. That's like uh, dumb ways to die. I'm, uh, I'm finna tell you about that good game on the iPod. Anyway, uh, the iOS. So, so we, we st- and then we had parent-teacher conferences from 4:30 until 8:30 p.m. And then the next morning, we had to be back at school from 7:30 a.m. to like 11.30 a.m. in order to have more conferences. So that Thursday was a 13-hour day. It was crazy, man. Um, yeah, but then we had half a day on Friday and no students. And as I always say, a day without students is a day off because I love my students, but I love having time away from them as well. Anyway, speaking of which, Hunter, man, I'm going to read those stories. God, I just, I, uh, there's so much going on. Anyway, this is this story is amazing. <laughs> There's only one story. I'm gonna I gotta read the whole thing because it's absolutely astounding. Uh, the headline is "Dispute Sends Indiana Education Meeting into Chaos." That's a great headline, and it doesn't really sound like chaos. Really, it sounds like someone who walked out and then some other people followed her out. But wh- I didn't know anything about this, and it just it, the whole situation is just fascinating to me. All right. A meeting that produced a new outline for grading Indiana schools turned out chaotic Wednesday when the state's top education officials stormed out, escalating an already testy battle with Republican Governor Mike Pence. Democratic Superintendent Glenda Ritz abruptly left the meeting on the state of the state school board she chairs when a Pierce appointee tried to transfer certain student assessment powers from her office to a second education department created by the governor earlier this year. 
Now that right there made me go, wait, what? There's a second education department? And and I unraveled the mystery, and this is what it is. Okay, first of all, this is the state where the last governor erupted a scandal when it came out that he had adjusted the criteria by which the schools are judged in order to make a school that he had gotten money from or given money to or for some reason he had a cozy economic relationship with this other school. He wanted to make sure that they passed. So suddenly he said basically like, oh, all schools of a certain number of students, like they don't have to count this kind of student score, which is cooking the books and it means the numbers go up even though no change has happened in how well the students are doing. And we see this over and over again. We see this in Atlanta. We see it in D.C. We see it everywhere that we have this high-stakes testing. The students don't actually do better but people find ways to cook the books in order to make it look like they're doing better. And it's all a shell game. It's pathetic. Um, so that's in, that was Indiana. Now, here's the thing. The governor, this guy named Mike Pence, he's a Republican right-winger, just like the governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Ugh. And he apparently didn't like what the Board of Education was doing in like not passing enough of his reforms or whatever. So he set up a second Department of Education. Absolutely stunning. The name of the thing is in here somewhere. What is it called? The Center for Education and Career Innovation. And basically, the governor just said, here's this new Department of Education staffed with people I like, and they're going to like oversee the Department of Education. So there's like... It's as if you had two presidents or something, right? And there's, of course, there's fighting and stuff going on. And this woman feels like suddenly she didn't have any power because this other, the center for whatever, whatever, education and career innovation, suddenly they're making all the rules. And she didn't have any authority anymore, even though she was either elected or appointed to do a job. Ridiculous. Democrat, so she left the thing. This meeting is adjourned, Ritz said repeatedly while packing her things and walking out. Department of Education staff quickly followed suit, while leaders of Pence's second education department and the other board members stayed put. It is unclear whether Ritz ended the meeting. Absolutely ridiculous. Look, first of all, if she's the chair of the meeting, when she says the meeting's adjourned, I don't know Robert's rules of order too well, but I think that means the meeting is over. I, 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 there's a, again, like, it's unclear. There's a way these meetings work. There are rules that they work by. And it's not as though it's just like, well, when everybody goes, okay, I guess the meeting's over, then the meeting's over. No, there are certain rules about how it happens. <sighs> Before Ritz left, the board voted to approve new school grade categories and broadly accept the recommendations of a bipartisan panel formed in the wake of a scandal earlier this year. New categories for determining school letter grades were broadly laid out, but the board plans to work through next year filling in details. Indiana's A through F school grading formula was investigated after an Associated Press report, this is what I was talking about earlier, showed Ritz's predecessor, Tony Bennett, not that Tony Bennett, changed rules to raise the grade of a political donor's charter school from C to an A last year, blah, blah, blah. Wednesday's vote was a rare moment of unity between Ritz and the other members of the board in an ongoing education war. Ritz accused Pence on Tuesday of conducting a complete takeover of education policy over the past month. A Pence spokeswoman responded uh, to the accusation saying the governor had worked in good faith with her. Ritz told reporters later Wednesday she blamed Pence and his new education agency, the Center for Education and Career Innovation, not the other board members for the continuing power struggle. There's a lot of conflict and I attribute it solely not to the members of the board actually, but to the CECI staff that have been hired to actually oversee my agency. Ritz said. Um, yeah, so what a freaking mess. 
Just oh, unbelievable. Oh, on the side here is this Bat Kid thing. Phil Olson talked about this Bat Kid. How awesome is that? The Make-A-Wish Foundation had this thing where they let this guy, this kid who's got like terminal disease or something, he had he got to be Batman for a day, and the whole city uh, joined in. Hi, Duchess! She looked and heard that I was doing a podcast, and she let let me be in peace and went out to work on the chickens and she's checking to see if there's eggs let's see if there's eggs do i have a drum roll let me see if i have a drum roll sound effect i do here we go are there eggs a new egg yay there's new eggs hooray oh god i feel like we're podcasting with duke now i just announced it on the podcast she can't even hear me. Anyway, uh, so Bat Kid is awesome, and Indiana, oh, God, what a mess. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the CECI uh, in Indiana. Oh, my God, we're already over an hour. Let's talk Killer Robot. Violent robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Man, the Duchess is so awesome. She's she's leaving me be in peace to do this podcast. And then later today, I'm going to do another podcast. And she's going to be nice and kind and, and, and patient while I do that. I wish. Why you got to be yelling stuff during the podcast? She got an egg. Congratulations. I announced it on the show. How many do we have now? We got 11 eggs, y'all. And we're eating them quickly. We're trying to eat them as fast as we can. We had eggs yesterday. I'm probably going to have some egg salad soon, although I got leftovers from Indian food and Mexican food I got to eat. This is why people tune in, to hear about our egg status. Mm, it's excellent. <laughs> excellent. All right, killer robots. U.S. drone strikes break international law, report says. Yeah, that's shocking news. Uh, this is from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And, um, yeah, human rights groups raise concerns about civilians killed by strikes from 2009 to 13. Uh, drone attacks in Pakistan... Oh, wait. Yeah. Drone attacks, drone, drone attacks in Pakistan and Yemen against alleged terrorists have killed innocent civilians instead and have violated international laws, according to two human rights groups that released reports today. This isn't recent. This is from October. Why am I putting this in here now? Anyway. Um, oh, a new report released by human... No, no, that's... But the article's from October. So this is ancient news, dude. Why are you reporting on it, man? Whatever. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of bad news about that. Um, and then Democracy Now! had an interesting piece about a drone warrior's torment. Um, an interview with a guy named Brandon Bryant who has piloted drones. And, uh, you know, there was an article in, I don't know if it was Der Spiegel, some German magazine that uh, did an in-depth look at what life is like for people who pilot the drone craft. And as I said back then, as the article said, there's this weird extra layer for drone pilots because they spend time monitoring the targets first and they kind of get to know the people that they're watching. And if you read my awesome story, KR Services LLC, in my book, This Ain't What You're Wrong For, available now from fine booksellers everywhere, um, yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's a matter of faith. Like, who do you trust? Do you trust your doctor to pump this toxic stuff into your body? Anyway, Amy Goodman asks, Brandon, in this case, where you believe you killed a child, the report was written up as killing a dog? And the guy goes, no, the report actually said enemies killed in action, executed to standards. Like, that's what the after-action report said. It was very, very antiseptic. I guess it's the word. Um, yeah, so it's just, I don't know. It's an interesting look at, again, you know, we think of drones as being like, oh, 
it, it's completely, you know, it's antiseptic, as the guy says. Like, we think of drones as being totally, you know, pinpoint precision and, and no innocent people get hurt. And the answer, the you know, look, if we said no Americans get hurt, well, that would be sort of true, although the people piloting the drones are obviously being hurt mentally, emotionally, psychically, whatever. But there are innocent people being killed on the other side of the matter in Pakistan, Yemen, and other places, so whatever. Uh, and finally, on the robot front, uh, Roomba suicide? Question mark. This is from the New York Daily News, which is a pretty sensationalistic rag. I don't know if that's Rupert Murdoch or not, but they have a lot of sensationalism. So whatever. The sub headline says Roomba turns itself on, climbs onto hot plate where it burns. And saying it climbed onto the hot plate is a little sensationalistic because it was on this sideboard. Now the question about how it turned itself on is a fair one, and the hot plate was not on. I don't think it was, but. Um, Anyway, so the iRobot Roomba 760 apparently rebelled against its owners in Kirchdorf, Austria, when it crawled onto the hot surface, disintegrating into a pile of ash. Local newspapers state that the switched-off cleaner had been left on the sideboard, but it somehow switched itself back on, crawled along the work surface, and pushed a cooking pot out of the way. So, whatever, this isn't actually a suicide. This is a little glitch that caused it to turn on, and then then it moved on to a hot surface, which was already hot, and whatever. It pushed the cooking pot out of the way. Of course it did. That's what it does. It pushes things out of the way in order to sweep up your dirt. So I'm whatever. This isn't really that exciting an article, but it's interesting and whatever. All right, let's talk about hip hop. So this isn't actually about a hip hop artist because I've got a couple things I want to spit at you Spit is hip-hop vernacular for recite lyrics or whatever. So, um, yeah, a couple things I want to say about, well, one this week, one next week, about hip-hop that I've written. And the first one is, and then two weeks from, or next time plus one, I will tell you about Mantra, who's this British rapper I've been really into lately. So this guy on Reddit, for some reason, like he saw something I had posted somewhere on Reddit about hip-hop, and he said, I really like what you had to say, and I was curious to know your thoughts about hip-hop culture and politics, especially Jay-Z's thing with Barney. So, for those who don't know, there's a store in New York called Barney's, which is very high-end. They charge, like, $4,000 for a handbag and all this crazy stuff. And Jay-Z is entered into a deal with them, and he people have said, okay, so there have been some racial profiling cases where this guy was trying to buy a belt, and the store workers thought, oh, he he can't have this money legitimately, or how did he get this money? So they had cops follow him or something, I don't know. And it was totally legit, so it was, like, totally bogus, you know. So anyway, um, yeah, racial profiling. And people said, Jay-Z, you ought to pull out of your deal with Barney's in order to stand up for racial justice, and, and you know, it's totally not cool that they were profiling these people and blah, blah, blah. So uh, he asked me about my take on all of that stuff. And here's what I wrote. Hip-hop began as a political and social rebellion against the economic and racial degradations of the late 20th century. Early tracks like The Message, and It's Like That, would be considered conscious rap today. At the same time, party music has always been central to the culture as well, and the community has always tried to balance the one with the other. Consequently, members of the community must recognize that the essence of hip-hop culture is dedicated to nurturing community and resisting injustices that have remained stagnant since the 1960s, and in some cases gotten worse, as evidenced by the book The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, everybody should read it. 
Meanwhile, the rap industry is focused only on commercial appeal and accumulation of wealth, promoting a twisted vision of hip-hop as a financial venture no different from selling shoes or chewing tobacco. As Scroobius Pip and Dan Lassac remind us, quote, guns, bitches, and bling were never part of the four elements and never will be. And shout out again to whoever led me to that awesome track because it's really cool. I listen to it all the time still. Still, artists like Jay-Z represent a significant glimmer of hope for struggling youths, especially poor black kids caught in the crossfire of economic hardship, police harassment, and social misery. Commercial empires like Rockefeller can own can offer a certain relief to communities without access to other economic resources, and in the meantime, there's no question that Jay's music is extremely entertaining. The danger is that an artist's desire for commercial success will blind him or her to a significant political issues which they should respond to, an issue which might have raised a person's ire uh, while while they had no market status, can quickly be ignored or downplayed once business relationships take center stage. It seems like this is at play with the Barney's brouhaha. I expect he sees himself as an insider now and believes that perhaps he can achieve more change by working with companies rather than protesting them from outside, not to mention the fact that he's getting crazy paid. Now, I obviously disagree about working on inside versus outside, and I think he's showing his nature as more of a businessman than anything else. I don't know how anyone expected more from Jay-Z, considering his career trajectory and lyrical focus. The issue of racial profiling is significant, and he's in a position to call attention to it in a way that companies will notice. He has worked so hard to accrue financial power, but he's afraid to use it for anything that might hurt his bottom line. At the same time, I would point out that being unable to purchase expensive jewelry at a pretentious designer boutique in New York is a concern that only affects a tiny sliver of the hip-hop community. I dare say the hubbub surrounding Jay-Z here is a minor blip on the radar screens of hip-hop activists, most of whom are focused on much bigger issues like stop and frisk, the prison industrial complex, economic inequality, and youth empowerment. That's a beginning to a response. I hope it's useful. And I had a really good exchange with this guy. So, uh, yeah, I doubt he's listening, but if he is, shout out. I don't remember his name, but shout out to whoever you are. All right, so we're over an hour. Let's talk about the quarter Romans, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't <laughs> panic. You can't function if you live in fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait just a minute. What? Part of the proceeds he sell, of the stuff he sells at Barney's is going to a foundation, which does what? It's not just him getting paid. That's true. That's that's a that's a good nuance to add. Thank you very much, Duchess. All right, quote of the week. Um, yeah, Richard Hofstadter uh, was a he won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction for his 1963 book Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, and that makes me want to read it. I mean. That name makes me want to read it, but the fact that he won the Pulitzer Prize for it, oh yeah. Uh, anyway, in it he writes this, No doubt there is a certain measure of inherent dissonance between business enterprise and intellectual enterprise. Being dedicated to different sets of values, they are bound to conflict. And an intellect is always potentially threatening to any institutional apparatus or to fixed centers of power. End quote. What? Yeah. Okay. That's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, didacticsynapsefbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff. And you can also buy my book there. Uh, shout outs this week to Colin, aka Dr. Smith, for the Simpsons political vine. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man, people. Deal with it. Hey, listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Yeah. Jerky boys. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I am at esp at fbesp.org if you want to email me, or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I will stop talking now.
Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Um, yeah, so I had said in the earlier in the show that I was going to pimp this game for the iOS called Dumb Ways to Die. It's so cute. It's so fun. It's very easy to play, very quick. You can play, you know, a game takes usually about a minute at the most. Uh, but it's fun and it's cute, and the theme song is just adorable. So I'm going to play it as we exit here. Set fire to your hair. Poke a stick at a grizzly bear. Eat medicine that's out of date. Use your private parts as piranha bait. Dumb ways to die. The video is so cute. So many dumb ways to die. Watch the video at fbesp.org slash synapse. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Get your toast out with a fork. It goes about saying you shouldn't do any of this stuff. this red button do safe around trains a message from metro so i guess this is like a big public service announcement including the free game is all about don't get hurt by trains but whatever anyway i gotta eat lunch people that's it show's over go away